What is up, Iwu crew? The Wild West earned its nickname from the many gunslingers, outlaws, and criminals that roamed around the American frontier. But few people truly understand just how wild the Old West could be. Today, we are taking a look back at a man with a vile and infamous reputation who epitomizes the ruthless savagery of the Wild West. Though his kills may not be as numerous as others in the Wild West, his dark deeds were far more shocking. Today, we are talking about a man who earned himself the nickname, the Old West's Ted Bundy. Our story starts all the way back in 1856, when Stephen D. Richards was born in Wheeling, West Virginia. His family was already bursting by the time Stephen came along, with five sisters and a brother. His mother was a devout Methodist, and his father worked as a farmer. When Stephen was six, the Richards family packed up their lives and moved to Ohio, eventually settling in the Quaker village of Mount Pleasant. There, Stephen attended school where he was known to be a well-behaved student and went to both Sunday school and church on a regular basis. Nothing in his upbringing would give a hint to the unsavory tendencies that Stephen would indulge in later in his life. There is only one incident from his childhood that may have been a clue to Stephen's later outlook on life. As a child, he had been given the task to kill a litter of kittens, which he did by hitting them against a tree. He found that he wasn't plagued by any feelings of guilt and had even enjoyed the gruesome act, a sinister aspect of his personality that he would demonstrate further down the road with similar dark deeds. Stephen grew up to be regarded as a handsome, charismatic, and well-liked young man by all who knew him. There are conflicting reports about exactly what he looked like. Some descriptions claimed he was six foot two and heavily built with dark hair and blue eyes. But another description said he had light brown hair and dark gray eyes. Either way, his good looks would help him later in life, aiding him to easily avoid suspicion and gain people's trust. Misfortune eventually struck the Richards family, and on September 16, 1871, Stephen's mother died. It isn't known what killed her, but without his mother, Stephen's family relied on him to help contribute, and so he lived and worked at home until he was 20 years old. He also often helped other farmers in the area. Also at 20, Stephen became engaged to a young woman named Anna Milhorn. But around this same time, he hit the road traveling. Stephen started westward, moving to Iowa seeking steadier work and his fortune, as many young men did, though the couple kept up correspondence through letters. While in Iowa, Stephen started work as an attendant at the Iowa Lunatic Asylum where his job was to bury the deceased patients. This job would be incredibly influential on Stephen's outlook on the world and on humanity itself. His constant handling of the deceased patients would lead him to grow accustomed and desensitized to death and seemingly 
lose all empathy for other human beings. In late 1876, Stephen left his grim occupation and began wandering aimlessly through the Midwest. He quickly fell in with men he later referred to as having questionable occupations. Soon the young man began moving counterfeit bills and consorting with train robbers. Eventually, he moved to Nebraska, where he stayed in Hastings and Kearney, finding trouble everywhere he went. At each place he stayed, Stephen found himself in a series of gunfights. Shootouts that he said ended with him shooting his opponent each time. Unconcerned with their well-being, Stephen never checked to see if the other men survived the gunfights and would just continue on his way. As Stephen wandered through the Nebraska countryside, he came across other drifters. One such man Stephen became acquainted with while he was traveling on horseback, and the two struck up a conversation. They decided to camp together near Dobytown or Sand Hills. It isn't clear where exactly. To pass the time, Stephen and the man began to play cards and gamble, which resulted in Stephen taking almost all of the stranger's money. The next day, when they were headed into Kearney, the man demanded that Stephen return the money to him but to the man's frustration, Stephen refused. The man said to him, either give me back my money or fight. Stephen's response was to pull out his gun and shoot the man just above his left eye. He checked to make sure that the man had died before he rolled his body into a nearby river before proceeding on his way. Despite this being his first confirmed kill, Stephen showed little pause or remorse and continued his travels as though nothing had happened, where he then came across another traveler. This man, however, remarked to Stephen that he had seen him with the other stranger previously and wanted to know which way the man had gone. Suddenly caught, Stephen denied ever knowing the stranger that he had killed, but it turned out that both of the men were business partners and that this new man was determined to find him. He continued to hound Stephen, demanding that he explain what had happened to the man he camped with. Unable to explain that he had killed his business partner in cold blood, Stephen realized that he had only one course of action. When the man turned his back, Stephen shot him too, aiming for the back of his head. He disposed of the body as best he could, and took the man's possessions to sell, including his horse. With another dark deed in the books, Stephen's body count was quickly adding up, but he was only getting started, especially because he was rapidly growing accustomed to murder. Stephen then traveled to stay at the house of one of his unsavory acquaintances, a known train robber named Jasper Harlson and his wife, Mary. When he arrived, Mary noticed something grim about Stephen's appearance. His clothing was stained in blood. Rather than deny it or concoct a clever story to explain, Stephen simply replied, as if joking, that the blood had come from the men he killed. At some point, Stephen used the counterfeit bills he was passing to buy a horse and buggy, which the seller soon discovered were fake. 
As the area was particularly lawless, the man decided he had to take justice into his own hands. He tracked down Stephen and demanded he actually pay for the horse and buggy or return them. Stephen refused, and the man threatened to have him arrested. But before he could call for aid, Stephen shot and killed him before burying the body and once again moving on. As is likely apparent, Stephen had an increasing lack of regard for human life. In 1877, he soon added to his ever-growing victim list when he traveled with a young man known as Gimji, who he ended up having a vicious argument with and also killed. Apparently, their argument was sparked when Stephen awoke Gimji at 3 a.m. and pointed insults quickly began to fly. Stephen later recalled, quote, It's a good thing you don't mean all you say, I said. But I do mean it, he said. You don't want to mean it, I said. And he picked up his revolver and, saying, Here is something that backs all that I say, cocked it. I looked at him and thought, The fool acts as if he means to shoot. And skipping out my little thirty-three, I plugged him one in the head. That was the first real trouble we ever had. Stephen's crime spree only paused when he was arrested and put in jail in Kearney for larceny in 1878. But the authorities who found him had no idea the true depth of his dark deeds, and he was once again free later that year. While in jail, Stephen had reconnected with Mary Harrelson, the wife of the train robber. Mary was desperate for money, and she made a deal with Stephen that she would give him the deed to her house for $600. Little did she know she was welcoming a killer into her life, something she would later regret. Jasper Harrelson was on the run from authorities for his own crimes, and though he was seemingly still married to Mary, Stephen and Mary reportedly also got married, a move that many believed was Stephen's attempt to swindle her out of the land that she owned. And it appears that these speculations may have been right. Any marital bliss, if there was any, ended after a month when Stephen's murderous inclinations turned towards his new wife and her three young children. 10-year-old Daisy, 4-year-old Mabel, and 2-year-old Jesse. Mary likely knew that Stephen had killed at least twice before, as he had admitted as much to her when she previously saw him covered in blood. But as a single mother in the 1800s, Mary would have needed a husband to help take care of her and her family, and even a husband who had killed was better than destitution alone, or so she thought. On November 3, 1878, Stephen woke up before the rest of the household and went outside to dig a hole with a spade. Then he collected an axe and calmly returned into the house, where he successively killed Mary, Daisy, Mabel, and Jesse. How exactly Stephen killed the family is up for debate, though none of the alleged means were any less gruesome. One newspaper reported that Stephen later claimed he used an axe to kill the entire family while they still slept, going from one room to the other. Stephen would say that most of them had died after the first several blows, all except for Daisy, 
who had, quote, writhed in pain for some time. In another report, he killed Mary and one of the children by using a smoothing iron and physically assaulted the others until they too died. Well accustomed to killing at this point, Stephen allegedly cleaned up the blood and scrubbed the floors before sitting down to have his breakfast. He then carried out the bodies and put them into the hole he prepared. Whenever anyone asked what had happened to Mary and her children, Stephen would calmly reply that she had left town to find her husband, Jasper. At some point, Stephen began using aliases, likely to avoid any connection to him and his many murders. When his new neighbor, a Swedish immigrant named Peter Anderson, asked him for help on his land, Stephen introduced himself as Dick Richardson. Their relationship took a sour turn when Stephen offered Peter a meal he had made, and the man became violently ill. Peter told their other neighbors that he suspected Stephen of trying to poison him. The next day, Peter went to Stephen with his accusation, which Stephen denied. The two then began to argue, with Peter reportedly attacking Stephen with a knife. It isn't clear exactly what happened, but Stephen ended up killing Peter with either a hammer, a hatchet, or shot him. Either way, he buried Peter's body under a pile of coal within his own cellar. With this last death, Stephen believed that his crimes would soon catch up with him. In the evening, he packed up to flee Carney before he was caught. However, Stephen made one important error. He decided to steal Peter's horses, which alerted their neighbors to something being wrong, especially as they knew Peter had thought Stephen tried to poison him. When they confronted Stephen about Peter's whereabouts, he told them he was inside the house, which was technically true. When they went inside to find Peter, Stephen saw his opportunity to escape and took it. Peter's body was quickly discovered, and soon the Nebraska governor issued an arrest warrant for Stephen D. Richards with the reward of $200. Wanted posters were drawn up, showing 22-year-old Stephen with a large mustache. Stephen was truly on the run then, with many in Nebraska looking for him. While on the road, he met up with Jasper Harlson, who was still hiding from the authorities. The two traveled together for a while. It isn't known if Stephen told Jasper about the dark fate of his wife and children, but they appear to have parted ways when Stephen returned to Mount Pleasant, Ohio. Stephen believed he had made it home free, but little did he know the wanted flyers with his face printed on them had made it to surrounding states. On December 20th, 1878, Stephen attended a ballroom dance with two women, and there he was spotted by the eagle-eyed constable McGrew. Recognizing Stephen as a wanted killer, McGrew sought the help of a penitentiary guard, and the two collected their shotguns and set out to hunt down a murderer. They found Stephen walking through a field with the two women. When Stephen saw the armed men approaching, he told the women to run back to town so he could fight his way to freedom. But when the women didn't leave, Stephen surrendered rather than begin a shootout. He later stated, If I hadn't had the two girls with me, 
I guess the Constable McGrew who arrested me would have been a dead man. Either of us would, for I'd have shot. Still, other accounts tell wildly different stories of how the notorious killer was finally brought to justice. For instance, in one version of his capture, someone Stephen used to know recognized him in a town nearby Mount Pleasant and helped to apprehend him. And yet another iteration, Stephen is said to have been arrested in Austin, Texas. Being such a notorious figure, it's no wonder this cold-blooded killer has been enshrouded in lore. But no matter how Stephen was detained in the end, the fact remains that his reign of terror luckily saw its end when he was finally brought to justice. While in jail in Steubenville, Ohio, Stephen no longer denied his kills, and in fact, he enjoyed talking about his crimes in detail. Stephen decided to write two articles for the local newspaper where he confessed to a total of nine murders in three years. From behind bars, Stephen also gave an interview to a reporter. The reporter described him as playful, carefree, and cheerful, while also stating that he was a butcher for his many crimes. To the reporter, Stephen said, I have killed nine persons, and I can't say that I feel any the worse for it. I have only one wish now in the world. I wish to kill two more persons. When the reporter asked who, Stephen replied, a preacher and a reporter. The reporter asked him if his conscience felt a pang when he killed Mary Harrelson's children, or if he regretted taking their lives. Stephen had laughed before he replied, Not a damn bit. Just as soon have slaughtered so many pigs. As for a pang, as you call it, I didn't feel anything, only that I had got rid of the crowd. The public was outraged by both his numerous crimes and the flippant way he discussed them. In the 19th century media, Stephen became known as the Nebraska Fiend, the Kearney County Murderer, the Ohio Monster, and even a Prince of Murderers. On his journey back to Kearney for his trial, authorities had to frequently move Stephen as mobs would form outside the jails in the hopes to lynch him. Stephen appeared to enjoy the attention as he asked if the whole town was there to see him. It was his attitude during his trial, which later in modern times earned him the nickname, the Old West's Ted Bundy. At the time, he was described as manifesting supreme indifference to his fate and for his crimes, but also coming off as charismatic and articulate, much like Bundy. Also like Bundy, Stephen was grandiose and believed a book should be written about him something he considered doing himself. Just like Bundy, Stephen's good looks earned him sympathy and doubt. Both Stephen and Bundy used their charm, looks, and intelligence to manipulate others. The biggest difference between the two was that Stephen appeared to gain no satisfaction from his kills and had no preferred method of killing. A friend of a reporter made a comment about Stephen that was later published, saying, He does not look like a murderer. He has a pleasant face. His voice is like a woman's, and his eyes are not at all savage. On the contrary, they are mild 
and rather expressive of confidence. Can a man with such eyes be a murderer? At the same time, the public struggled to understand how someone like Stephen could kill so many people without any remorse, as they often believed that criminals had to be from the lower classes and not particularly smart. Stephen's existence destroyed their stereotypes, something that brought him much fame even after he died. At age 23, Stephen D. Richards was convicted for the murders of Mary Harlson, her children, and Peter Anderson. On April 26, 1879, he was publicly executed by hanging, and between 2,000 and 25,000 people came to watch. It took him 15 minutes to die. A photograph was taken of his corpse within his coffin, which shows him propped up for all the spectators to gawk at. At the time, doctors had wanted Stephen to donate his body to be studied, and even though he had refused, Stephen's grave was robbed of his corpse the night after his execution. It was later returned, but not for long. At some point, he was once again dug up, and his bones were scattered across Kearney. It has been reported that the Kearney County Gazette had his skull and kept it in their office window. Today, the location of his bones is unknown, but it is suspected that they have been thrown into a well. Stephen's notorious story has fascinated us through history, not only for how he managed to use his charm and charisma to sow doubt in spectators during his trial, but also for the total lack of compassion and remorse that he displayed for his victims. Follow us on Twitter at Louis Gang Entertainment, on YouTube and Instagram at Louis Gang. It will mean so much to the whole team.